We're going to spend the next couple of months studying the books of First and Second Timothy in the New Testament. If you want to open up to First Timothy, you can do that. We will be there in just a few moments. They are absolutely fantastic books of the Bible, but what they really are are letters written from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. They're full of passion. They're full of teaching, wonderful teaching about how the church is supposed to run and how we are supposed to live a life set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They contain fantastic gold nuggets out of God's word that we need to pay attention to. I'm really looking forward to sharing them with you. When I knew that I was going to preach this series, I started digging around, looking for examples of letters through history, just to kind of introduce the idea of what we were doing. I found the video that we watched just a few minutes ago, wonderful, wonderful music video by Mark Schultz. And then I found some other letters, some of them kind of funny, others of them very powerful. And I had decided that I wanted one that was full of passion to start the whole series out. And I discovered one, almost by accident, written by Elvis Presley to then-President Richard Nixon. As Elvis was traveling all across the country, he was watching the drug culture take off in the 60s and early 70s. He was watching as the race wars were really at a peak during that exact same time. And Elvis decided that he could do something to help. But it was going to require an official title along with a badge from the president. So when he was flying across the United States, Elvis wrote by hand a letter to President Nixon asking him for those two things. They just made me smile. The title he wanted, Federal Agent at Large. And he wanted a badge to go with it. So that he, under the authority of the president, could affect change everywhere he went. Could you imagine Elvis Presley coming up to you during the drug culture, the rise of the drug culture, everybody knowing that Elvis had his own struggle with it, flashing a badge and telling you that he was a federal agent at large and you were now under arrest for what you were doing. I don't believe anybody would have gotten locked up. But there was a lot of passion in the letter that he wrote. As I was getting that ready to share with you this morning, I discovered another letter that changed the entire course of the direction I was going. This one was written by a young Jewish man, 18 years old when he penned it. It actually isn't a letter, it's an excerpt from his diary. His name is Moish Flinker. He was on his way to Auschwitz with his family, or he had just gotten there when he wrote this. By implication, we would assume that it happened prior to him being delivered there with his parents. Otherwise, it would not have survived for us to see it. Take a look at what he wrote. August 16th, 1943. On the first of this month, the following bulletin appeared in the papers. The Arabs and the Jews in Palestine are preparing to wage war against one another. The Daily Mail from Cairo reports that the Arabs and Jews are arming themselves to the teeth and that relations between them are worsening every day. It is said that the Arabs have approximately 100,000 rifles and many machine guns, mortars, small arms, and hand grenades. The Jews have only 50,000 rifles, but they have more artillery, about 2,000 machine guns and a few heavy cannons. It is said that the Jews even have their own armaments industry. As soon as I saw the words Jews and Palestine, my heart trembled. And as I read on, I felt more and more distressed, for this bulletin was written in the same way that the riots of a few years ago were reported. The thought of bloodshed, the blood of my dear brothers, which become more precious from day to day, 
terrified me. And why? Because this blood will not flow for a Jewish cause. The death of our dear brothers will not change the horrible situation of our people one bit. As I read, my heart began to beat faster and the blood pounded in my veins. And I suddenly felt a great yearning for my beloved country and a longing for my dear brothers. Although their struggle will not better the lot of the Jews as a people, still my heart went out to them. For when they suffer, they will suffer as Jews who stand and fight. And when they die, they will die as Jews who have defended themselves, as free Jews. And not like those of my brothers who are now suffering under the atrocious Germans, who lead them like sheep to be slaughtered. Isn't that an interesting writing? Again, that comes from this 18, 19-year-old young man who actually died in the concentration camps. Revisionists are trying to remove the entire idea of the Holocaust from history. Don't ever let that happen. It happened. And it is writings like this from Moesha's diary and other letters that have made their way around in our culture and our society that will always remind us of what happened. Interesting, as I read this, I found my heart beating faster and the blood pulsing through my veins, just like his were as he was reading the Daily Mail. He wrote with such passion about what was going on for his people and what the Jews were experiencing during that time that you can't help but get caught up in it. When Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus, he wrote with that same exact type of passion. You get caught up in it as you make your way through these books. Letters, again, that's what they really are, are letters. Please read them that way. We would call them the pastoral epistles. The books of First and Second Timothy and Titus are all covered under that heading, the pastoral epistles, written to two young men that Paul loved deeply. They were in charge of churches that he loved deeply. Timothy was pastoring the church in Ephesus, and Titus was pastoring on the island of Crete, places where Paul had invested his life, and he had entrusted those investments to these young men. When they came under attack and the churches that he loved came under attack, Paul was quick to pick up his pen and paper and write these letters to these young men that they might find what they needed that they might be shored up in their discouragement, that they might be encouraged to continue the fight. Paul didn't want them to feel like they were alone, so he wrote to them. And he wrote with great passion. We don't know. The Bible reserves the details of how Paul died. We're not aware of how that took place. Now, church history speculates on it. A number of scholars have tried to connect some dots. The best we can figure is that he died in the year 68 AD, just a few months after, or a few months before Nero himself would die. Paul did die at the hand of the Romans. Ostensibly, it would appear that he was beheaded because of Christ and because of his investment in Christianity. But again, the Lord has kept those details from us more than likely so that we would not venerate the Apostle Paul over Jesus. More than likely, he made sure that we never got those details so that we would not see the life and the death of Paul as more important than the actual Word of God. Yet as we put together the details of the last years of his life, here's what we know. He was in and out of prison because of his faith a number of times. Between the last imprisonment and the one prior to it, Paul wrote two of the pastoral epistles. The books of 1 Timothy and Titus were written while he was a free man. 
the last of those books, 2 Timothy, he would write from a prison cell, and he would never write again. They are the last words of the Apostle Paul. He would soon lose his head after penning them. He would never see Timothy again. He would never see Titus again. He would never see the churches that he longed for again. Paul died right after writing these letters. They are written with the passion of a man that knows that he is not long for this earth. Just take a look at how 1 Timothy begins. If you're open to that book, then you can look just at the first two verses and catch a glimpse of how important this was to the apostle. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Boy, he comes out of the chutes ready to go. He really does. Paul captures your attention very quickly in just those two verses. You can feel his passion. You can sense the desire with which he writes. Now, one of the natural questions is, who is Timothy? Where does this guy come from? Why is he so important that Paul would write him a personal letter? There are only four books of the New Testament that are letters, personal letters. These three called the pastoral epistles and one addressed to Philemon. So why was Timothy so important to Paul? Well, we can get a little bit of an understanding just from these two verses. Timothy was from the area of Lystra. We discover him in the book of Acts. That's where he first shows up. He was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. If we were going to attach a slang term to his heritage, we would call Timothy a half-breed, oftentimes overlooked by everyone, but particularly the Jews. He didn't have the heritage that would lead to a position of authority in their eyes, but his heritage didn't matter to Paul. Paul led him to Christ. He would refer to him as his true son in the faith. The odds are that Timothy met Paul on his first missionary journey when Paul was performing miracles in Lystra. Timothy was a believer because his mother and his grandmother were both believers. We know that from the book of 2 Timothy. Turn over there with me real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says to this young man, I am reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Remember that they were Jewish by heritage. Once Jesus had come and they began to hear the the stories of all that he had done, they began to move out of Judaism into Christ. They were followers of Jesus, but they were not fully disciples until the apostle Paul showed up. Then Paul would introduce them to who Jesus was and what he came to do, not only for them, but for everyone else. And at that moment, the entire family became Christians. They became disciples. And Timothy said to Paul, I want to go with you. I want to be a part of what's going on. When Paul came back through on his second missionary journey and he found his way into Lystra, Timothy was at the front of the line, ready to sign up and become a part of all that Paul was doing. He had become a zealous believer in Jesus Christ. Want to know how we know that? Let's go to the book of Acts together. I'll show you what true zealousness looks like. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra 
The disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now, in case you missed the zealousness of Timothy, let me point it out to you. He was in his late teens, possibly his early 20s, when he signed on with the Apostle Paul to become a missionary. Now, Paul had an incredible ministry to the Jews, and he knew that because of the Greek influence of Timothy's father, the Jews weren't going to pay attention to him unless he did something fairly significant. He needed to be circumcised. Now, let's make sure that you're following what's happening. He is in his late teens, early 20s. And Paul says to him, if you are going to sign on with me, you're going to have to be circumcised. And Timothy said, okay, sign me up. Whatever you want me to do, Paul, I believe in what you're doing. And if that's what it requires, I'm in. That's zealousness, my friends. He was all in for whatever Jesus wanted him to do, whatever Paul asked him to do. Timothy was willing. Warren Wiersbe would say he had the heart of an Arctic explorer. Now, here's what he means by that. In the early 1900s, when we were exploring the polar regions, they had to find men that were willing to go on those expeditions. A fellow named Ernest Shackleton had gone on too, and, and he was world-renowned for it. Everybody knew who Shackleton was. When he was getting ready to go on his third expedition to Antarctica, he put up posters that read just like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Now, that is not a politically correct spun message for recruiting men to go on this type of an expedition. But do you know that when this poster was hung, thousands of men signed up. They had to turn people away because Ernest Shackleton's name was on the poster. They were going to have the chance to sail with him. They wanted to be a part of his expedition. Well, Wearsby goes on to say that in the days of the early church, posters just like that could have been hung all over the land. When Paul was coming into an area, he might well have put up signs like this. Men and women wanted for difficult task of helping build my church. You will be often misunderstood even by those working with you. You will face constant attack from an invisible enemy. You may not see the results of your labor and your reward will not come till after your work is completed. It may cost you your home, your ambitions, even your life. But that poster was signed by Jesus Christ. And for the ones that had become disciples, young men and women like Timothy, they were quick to sign up. They were quick to tell the Apostle Paul, my life has been changed by Jesus Christ. I want to share that message everywhere I can. I want to make sure that people hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sign me up, no matter what the cost, no matter what it takes, sign me up. That's who Timothy was. Now, we know through our study of Timothy that he was a man who wrestled with discouragement. 
not necessarily depression, but discouragement. We know that he had some physical ailments that chased him all of his life. The Apostle Paul would actually write to him about those things as well. And we know that he was often questioned because of his age. He didn't have a lot of wisdom. He wasn't very old when he took over the church. So he had to put up with a whole bunch of people saying that he wasn't qualified to be in that position. So Paul wrote to him. He wrote two letters to him just to make sure that Timothy was up to the task. What a great gift those letters were. Not only to Timothy, but to us. Now, if you'll go back with me to the book of 1 Timothy, you will hear Paul's first marching orders as they were given to this young man, starting in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So here's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Timothy, I have given you the leadership of this church that I love. That was the church in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul spent three years with this church, arguably the longest period of time he spent in any one place. He invested that much time in the city of Ephesus getting the church up and running. He loved the people there. He loved the ministry of that place. When he was leaving there, he said to Timothy, Timothy, I love these people so much that I want you to stay here as their pastor rather than coming along with me and you have been so valuable to me and just your presence alone has mattered to me. I love these people so much. I want you to stay right here. I can understand some of what the apostle was saying. Tina and I have had ministries in Wisconsin and Colorado and ministries in Missouri and, and now in Montana. And the churches that we minister to in Wisconsin, Colorado, and Missouri have a special place in our hearts, and we have strong affection for the people of those churches. But this is the church we love. This is where we have been invested for 13 years. This is the church and the, the people that make her up that have been a part of our lives, and we've had the privilege of ministering alongside for all these years. This is the place that we could say beyond the shadow of any doubt, we love we love this church. It's that same type of emotion that Paul was bringing to the church in Ephesus. And after he had left Timothy there, some people rose up against the teaching that the Apostle Paul himself had given them and began to teach contrary to what Timothy was teaching. Timothy was teaching the love of Jesus Christ, the grace of God that comes through that love. He was teaching that we're not saved by the law, we are saved by grace through faith. 
That's exactly what he was teaching to them, a message that Paul would give that church. And now these coyotes show up and they start trying to eat off of the the bottom. They start trying to tell people that it isn't that way. You are saved by the law. Yeah, Jesus died for you, but you are truly saved by the law. They were trying to take them backwards. So Timothy was having to say repeatedly, we cannot go backwards. We have to continue to move forward. And Paul wanted him to be reassured in that. So he wrote this section to him. Timothy, you teach sound doctrine. Don't you let them get a hold of the pulpit. Timothy, don't you let them get into classrooms. Timothy, you keep them away because you know the truth. Stand up for what you know. That's exactly what he was saying to the young evangelist. You hold fast to what you know to be the truth. Because Satan was on the move. He was attacking this place that Paul loved. Timothy was up to the challenge. He just needed somebody to stand behind him. Satan has always been on the attack. He has attacked not only churches, but he has attacked individuals. More often than not, he does it the exact same way every time. Let me show you what I mean. Let's go back to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2. Well, you're on your way there. I'm going to stop off in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44. I want you to listen to what Jesus says about his greatest enemy. He says, "'You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires.'" He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. That is the way Jesus himself would define Satan. He is the father of lies and he always has been. He has always used lying to accomplish his purposes. He will lie to the non-believer. He will lie to the believer. By the way, one of the most prevalent lies today that happens all the time is you deserve to be happy. It's a lie that comes directly from the devil. Nobody ever promised you that, ever. Now, in Christ, we know that God wants to give us the desires of our heart, and we know that we can affect wonderful blessings, and we can bring all kinds of things about in our life, but it requires faithfulness. You can't just go out and live however you want and then expect God to bless you. It doesn't work that way. But the father of lies would tell you it does. You deserve to be happy. Go do whatever you want. Live any way you want. Forget about what matters to God. You just go do what you want. That's the father of the lies, speaking. And he's always done it that way. Utilizing what I refer to as one degree of separation. Now let me show you what I'm talking about. We're in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now we're going to take a little biblical test together, and I'm going to ask everybody to participate. This isn't a rhetorical question. I am actually asking for an answer. When this conversation happened, God was speaking to who? Adam. Now, let's say that a little louder like you are boldly convinced that you're right. God was speaking to Adam. All right, now let's go to chapter 3 together. I'm going to show you one degree of separation. Verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave same to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now here's question number two in this biblical test. When Satan has this conversation, he is speaking to Eve. Now say that one more time like you are boldly convinced you're right. Satan was speaking to Eve. Eve. Congratulations, you get 100% on this test. God spoke to Adam, Satan spoke to Eve. When God delivered the decree to Adam, there was no separation. Adam heard it directly from the mouth of the Lord. More than likely, he told Eve what was going on. Satan, understanding one degree of separation, chose to speak to Eve, not to Adam. There was weakness in the separation. So rather than Eve being able to say, I heard it directly from the mouth of the Lord, she had the one degree of separation necessary for Satan to come on the scene and plant the lie. And he still does. All he needs is one degree of separation. It happens all the time. Deanie and I were talking about this this morning before first service. We will have people that will come into our office on a regular basis. They'll tell us about what's going on in their life and the brokenness that they are experiencing. And we know that they have some sort of a faith history because they knew to come to the church. And in the course of that conversation, we will hear statements like this, and it happens all the time. I shouldn't be going through this. My dad was a preacher. One degree of separation. I shouldn't be going through this. My grandfather was a preacher. One degree of separation. Or we'll have people that will come in and they'll share with us the brokenness that they're experiencing. And we'll ask this question. We ask it all the time. Well, how are you doing in your walk with God? Are you spending time in the Word of God? Are you praying? And they'll say, no, I'm not spending nearly as much time in my Bible as I used to. One degree of separation. That's all Satan needed. If he can get you to back off of the amount of time that you are spending in Scripture, he has one degree of separation, and in that one degree, he can plant lie after lie after lie after lie that causes you to do things that you wouldn't do if that degree didn't exist. Or we will say to him, gosh, it's been a long time since we've seen you in church. Yeah, I know, just had this going, had that going. One degree of separation in the relationship. I haven't prayed in a long time. One degree of separation. That's all he needs. Back in the church in Ephesus, they had just one degree of separation. The apostle Paul himself was their preacher. When he preached, he brought the thunder of God and he did it with great authority. Paul spoke as a man who had seen Jesus himself. That happened on the road to Damascus. He had this conversion story that allowed him to preach grace like few other people could preach. He was there when Stephen was murdered. He gave his blessing to it. So when Paul stood up and said, God can forgive you of your sins through his son Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, he spoke with no separation. He had seen Jesus himself. He carried the title apostle. After he left and Timothy stepped up, there was one degree of separation between the apostle Paul and the church in Ephesus. And that's all it took for these false teachers to find their way in and begin to teach salvation by works, not by grace. 
They took what they had already heard and they added legalism and the law to it. And they diluted the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They stole. They stole from Jesus what he did on the cross. Every time they opened their mouths, that's what they did. There was just one degree of separation between Paul and the church, and that's all it needed. And Satan found his way in. Now, that's very personal to me because the church that Tina and I served in in Missouri before we came here, I worked with the the holiest man I have ever had the privilege of being around in my life. He was the, the living epitome, still is, of righteousness itself. The most powerful preacher I have ever heard in my life, whether that was on the radio, TV, or sitting right in front of him, he knew how to preach the Word of God because he had been changed by the Word of God, and he lived it every day of his life. When he retired at 82 years old, the elders of the church spent the better part of 18 months looking for the right person to take the job. They hired a young man that that came in and loved the kingdom of God. He loved preaching, but he was caught up in his own competitiveness, and he found himself in a place where he was stealing sermons from other people. The church went from 3,700 on an average weekend down to about 2,200, and it didn't take that long for the decline to start because the man that was in the pulpit had compromised the things of God. He wasn't given credit for what he was doing. He was just stealing sermons. That's all he was doing and not telling anybody where he had gotten any of the material, claiming it as his his own. And the church began to shrink. One degree of separation from this man who had come when the the church was struggling just to hit 150 and helped it grow to nearly 4,000 because he was seeing people one to the Lord over and over and over again out of a personal holiness. One degree of separation and the church started going backwards. That's what was happening in Ephesus. One degree of separation. So Paul showed Timothy a way through it. And this is great medicine for every one of us. Let's go back to chapter 1. Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Three things is what Paul wanted Timothy to grab hold of. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith in the things of the Lord. That's all it was going to take to turn this thing around. Because he would say, if you're reading between the lines, Timothy, these false teachers don't have those things. You do. So demonstrate them over and over and over again, and people are going to pay attention. They're going to notice what's going on because you have a pure heart. You have a good conscience, and you have a sincere faith. A pure heart is one that brings the gospel just so people can be changed by it. No other motives, that's all. Now, when we get to a good conscience, that becomes a little more of an interesting idea. The word conscience is used 21 times in the writings of Paul, six times in the pastoral epistles alone. The word conscience means to know with. You have a conscience, I have a conscience. It was given to us by God. That's what allows us to know right from wrong. And when that conscience is powered by the Holy Spirit, we know not only right from wrong, but we know God's right from wrong. Does that make sense? When that conscience that is inside of you and inside of me, it's inside of everybody with the exception possibly of the criminally insane, we have a choice to keep that good or let it become bad. If we keep it good, then we are able to demonstrate what the Apostle Paul was saying, a love of God that comes through His Son, Jesus Christ, that cannot be robbed even by the most powerful of false teachers. 
So you hold on to those things, he says. Now, I heard just this last week exactly what that might look like. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, which, by the way, a sincere faith in the things of the Lord happens when a person says that I'm going to do what I do for the sake of God and His kingdom. I'm going to trust that the Lord is going to take me and I will live by faith, not by sight, and there will be bold steps in the process of that because I trust the Lord. That's a sincere faith. Well, here's what it it looks like. Just a, a couple weeks ago, Our friends Laura Johnson and Marilyn Edwards went to Branson, Missouri. They took a few other ladies with them. Now, if you don't know who Laura is, I don't want to point fingers and let anybody know. She's sitting in this back section right next to some of her family members. They pulled into Sheridan, Wyoming. And while they were getting their luggage out of the van, (laughs) I can't even say this without laughing. While they're getting their luggage out of the van, this man comes up to Laura and Marilyn and says, as sure as I'm standing here, are you two ladies nuns? (laughs) I'm (laughs) that was a gift from God himself when Laura told me that. Oh my goodness. So apparently that's what a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith looks like. They look just like nuns. (laughs) Laura, I would ask your forgiveness, but there's nothing sincere about that. (laughs) Okay, moving on. What I really know is this. I know some men that demonstrate that. They are the men that watch over this church. They're the elders of our congregation. They have a pure heart. They have a good conscience, every one of them. And they have a sincere faith in the things of the Lord. Every one of them. We have six elders that are entrusted with making sure what happened in Ephesus does not happen in Libby, Montana. They are entrusted with that job. And they have followed the charge that Paul gave to Timothy. They do so with a pure heart. Their motives are all about the kingdom, every one of them, all six. They have a good conscience, every one of them. They have a good conscience, and that happened because they chose to keep it that way. And they have a sincere faith in the things of the Lord, boldly willing to go where God takes them, boldly willing to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And as such, Libby Christian Church is protected. Now, let me say this. Those men are not infallible. They do make mistakes, but they don't make mistakes out of an impure heart. They do not make mistakes out of a bad conscience or a lack of sincerity in their faith. Those three things are in place in all six of those men, and they watch this church diligently so that this doesn't happen, and I am so happy they do, so happy they do, and you should be as well. It's interesting to me that Paul would tell the elders of the church in Ephesus that they needed to be on their guard. In Acts chapter 20, he lays that out for them. He says, you need to be on your guard because false teachers will make their way in. You watch out for them, he says, and you do what it takes to keep them out of there. So we wrap this up. Let me share with you just a couple of other things real quickly. There are only two types of religion in the world. That may shock some of you because you've heard about all kinds of different religions, but there are only two types. There's one that is based on divine accomplishment. That's what God did for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's divine accomplishment. The other type of religion and every other religion in the world that does not fit in that first category fits in the second. It is based on human achievement, what we are able to do, and it will fall short every time. Every time. Divine accomplishment 
is the only thing that will lead you into salvation. Divine accomplishment is the only thing that will bring forgiveness for your sins. Divine accomplishment is the only thing that ushers you into heaven. And the only divine accomplishment there is, is what Jesus Christ did on the cross when he willingly died for you and me and three days later rose out of the grave and became victorious. That's how we get that victory. Only through divine accomplishment. That's a good place to say amen if you were looking for one. The other type, based on human achievement, leads to death. Every time. Every time. So Paul would tell Timothy at the end of the discourse we just read, you teach sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's what you preach, Timothy. And you protect the church from anything else. Say this to you again as we close. You be careful incredibly careful of anyone that would seek to mess around with the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life. They are not only dangerous, they are deadly. You be careful of any person that would bring you any teaching other than Jesus Christ. I received a letter just this past week from some folks that attended church here for a long time and they are no longer attending here. They wrote to me to let me know why that is, why they have chosen to no longer come here. There were two reasons. One isn't even remotely important, and the other one is this. They said that they are no longer attending here because I am not preaching the truth. And they went on to say that I'm not preaching the truth, and again, as sure as I'm standing here, this is what their letter said, because I preach the gospel of Jesus. I have been accused of a lot of things, that is the first time I have been negatively accused of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They asked me in their letter if I would be open and research some of the things that they said and, and if I would allow my heart to be led so that I could change the direction of the church and I could preach something different than the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's not the truth. I responded. And I let them know that I absolutely would never change and I am never, ever going to be open to any other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not ever. And I will never preach anything other than that. <clears throat> and neither would the elders of our church. There is no way in the world that they would allow any other teaching than the gospel of Jesus Christ at Libby Christian Church. And I'm going to say this, and I'll just say it as boldly as I can. If you are looking for a gospel different than the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not the church for you. Go somewhere else. I had somebody else tell me just this past week that they had somebody stop them on the street knowing that they attended Libby Christian Church and they wanted to tell them how wrong they were because we do not preach the truth. That man is a Satanist. And he, I'm not exaggerating. That man is a Satanist. And he was trying to lead this person that attends our church out of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ into following the greatest enemy of God there is. And he said he was so well-spoken and so good in his argument that for just a brief moment, he was tempted. He was tempted. Folks, here's the thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ and my desire to preach it and the elders' desire to protect it. Here it is, I have hung not only my own salvation, but the salvation of my family and your salvation on it. And I cannot compromise anything other to put it before you. 
because what we compromise is salvation. Even if that is somebody that comes on the scene and says, the gift of God through his son Jesus Christ on the cross was not enough. You need to bring in all these other works. You need to bring in this legalism. You need to bring in all of your actions. That's how you'll be saved. Well, that's a bunch of malarkey that leads directly to hell. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul passionately tells Timothy, you don't let any other gospel touch Ephesus. You don't let anybody else teach anything else. You protect it, Timothy. You protect it for all you're worth because salvation hangs in the balance. Eternity hangs in the balance. And don't let anybody ever tell you anything different than that. That's enough. Why don't you stand and pray with me? By the way, in case you're wondering, I'm still a little worked up about that letter. My, <laughs> my wife is hoping that that calms down soon. She's tired of hearing about it. So pray with me. Father in heaven, today is your day. It's so named because it was on Sunday morning that you walked out of the grave. And you granted us the opportunity to do the same. Thank you for that. I know there are others that would teach a gospel that steals from you the sacrifice of the cross and the gift of the victory of an empty tomb. I pray that you will silence them. And Lord, I, I commit in that prayer that you, I want you to silence them in any way you have to so that they lead no one astray. These letters were written from Paul to Timothy and they, they were written with such passion and such power that we have to pay attention. So I pray we will. Paul would call Timothy his true son because he led him to Christ. Lord, I pray that every person here will have somebody that will do the same for them, that will lead them to Christ. And I pray that it will happen quickly before it's too late. In Jesus' name, amen.